There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Today's guest is Marionette Miller-Meeks. She's a congresswoman from the great state of Iowa, won her first term last year by one of the closest margins in U.S. history, by just six votes. Yes, count them. One, two, three, four, five, six votes. Congresswoman Miller-Meeks originally dreamed of becoming a teacher because she loved school and she wanted to share her passion for learning with others. But she was severely burned in the kitchen fire when she was in 10th grade. That incident changed the rest of her life. We'll talk about that and much, much more today with our guest, Congresswoman Marionette Miller-Meeks. Congresswoman, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jim, and uh, let me wish you an early Merry Christmas. Thank you. I mentioned the kitchen fire, but before we get to that life-defining moment, what was your life like growing up before that day? Uh, Well, you know, when you're young, uh, you think that you have a very happy childhood. I was one of eight kids. I'm the fourth. Uh, My two older brothers were uh, my half-brothers, although we never referred to them as half-brothers. They were uh, my mother's uh, two sons from an earlier marriage. My dad was in the Air Force, and he was a master sergeant in the Air Force, so we traveled around quite a bit. Um, My mom had had a GED, and she also worked, so both my parents worked um, the entirety of my life. I can't remember a time when they weren't working, Uh, and it it is very common in most large households. We moved around a lot, and the older kids took care of the younger kids, so we had the big kids and the little kids, and and I remember learning how to fold laundry at at eight and then started... uh, (laughs) cooking for the family at about 10 or 11. And uh, it wasn't until I was, you know, in the army on my own that I figured out you could cook for other than 10 people. So there was a, you know, (laughs) typical standard fare. Uh, And, you know, there were hard times. We were very humble circumstances, but also uh, there was a lot of friction in my parents' marriage. And at one point in time, they were divorced for two years and then they remarried. Um, and I think for me, uh, learning how to read at a very young age, my mom and dad said I learned to read when I was three. And uh, I think that that's true because I can remember reading, which often were a lot of Bible books or, you know, any box, cereal box, anything. Um, and I think that love of reading really helped propel me along. What caused the kitchen fire and what was the extent of your injuries and how long was your recovery? Uh, Well, great question. So my dad was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, and uh, it was in February. We had gotten out because of the snow. And uh, so we had cooked, you know, breakfast and then we'd cooked lunch. um, And we have, I always cooked in a big cast iron skillet. And we had cooked some potatoes, uh, potatoes and onions uh, for all the kids that were in the house at the time. And my youngest brother, who was almost 11, was out playing in the snow and he came in later and we were in military housing. As a matter of fact, it was our first two story house ever for, uh, and the first time we ever had four bedrooms in a, in an apartment. And so all of my siblings were upstairs. I was downstairs and um, I smelt something burning. uh, And my younger brother who had put bacon in that cast iron skillet, which had a lot of grease in it and he put a lid on it. So I went into the kitchen to see what I smelt and, um, and the bacon was on fire, the grease was on fire, the flames were coming out from um, over the lid. And, um, you know, I didn't think I could take the lid off to put baking soda on. And of course, this is all happening very rapidly. Uh, and we had this little braided rug in front of the sink um, that we stood on, we did dishes. And so all I could think of was to put the rug over the pan to try to smother it. And um, there were still flames coming out from where the handle was. So I was trying to move the rug and it caught the handle and pulled the skillet off of this stove top and, and the whole kitchen went up in flames. And uh, so I proceeded to run upstairs to tell my sisters to call for the fire department and uh, got everybody outside and the fire department came. But uh, it, as it turned out, my younger brother and I were, were severely burned. And I remember going to the hospital and our parents uh, had to leave work and met us there. Um, and I just remember my younger brother was uh, screaming in pain and I was trying to be 
very stoic. And uh, I remember yelling at the doctor in the emergency room saying, well, can't you just give him some medication? And they said, well, we have to find out what's wrong with him. And I go, we know what's wrong with him. Um, so it was, um, you know, our extent of our burns were 13 to 15%, which burns are uh, very fatal. Um, we are very small. I'm very petite for those who meet me. Um, I used to say short. Now I say petite. It sounds a little better. Um, but, you know, it's your body mass. And since we were small, burns in children are worse. So um, we had a high percentage of body mass uh, to skin area that was burned. And uh, it was a very long hospitalization, five, almost six weeks. And then later that year, I went back in the hospital for several weeks for my graph. And my brother was also um, with me at that time. We roomed together because we were in isolation. So you're in isolation the entire time. Um, uh, but it was a it was one of those experiences um, that I think turned me into an optimist. And that's probably also the books I read growing up, which were a lot of Westerns, Max Brands, and Gray. And um, I, that experience, I had a phenomenal physical therapist. It was very painful to have the, the burned uh, skin or eschar pulled off. Um, but I wanted to help people the way that she had helped us. And, but I didn't want to create pain. And so it was during that hospitalization, I decided to become a doctor. And I think my entire life, that experience has made me into this person who sees the glass as half full rather than half empty. It's one thing to choose a new direction. It's quite another thing to choose and reach an ambitious new destination. As you mentioned, you wanted to become a doctor from that. You know, started as a nurse and maybe even a doctor, but your parents didn't necessarily believe that was a realistic goal for you. I've been told you said, quite matter-of-factly, that you naturally left home at 16 to enroll in community college and put yourself through school until you were 18 when you joined the army. What were those two years like? And what you made that, that your decision wasn't exactly what most 16 year olds would do? Well, it's funny when you say naturally, because to me, it seemed pretty natural. Um, so uh, my parents, you know, when you're young and your parents are dismissive or they try to dissuade you, or you think they disapprove of something you want to do, um, you think they don't have faith or confidence in you. And no one in my family had gone to college. Uh, my parents were extremely bright, very intelligent people. They were self-educated. They were extremely well-read. Um, as a matter of fact, when we were in Dayton, Ohio, my father had the periodic table of elements up in their bedroom. And I loved this huge, gigantic periodic table of elements. And he had been working on nuclear power. He was shutting down nuclear power plants for the military. And he would be um, borrowed by the Army, even though he was in the Air Force, uh, in order to, to help with these facilities. And so they were both very educated. My two older brothers went into the Army, one to Vietnam, one in the Green Beret. My older sister wanted to, to get married and have kids. So no one in my family had gone to college at that time. So I didn't realize when my parents were dissuasive or dismissive that they just didn't think that, you know, a poor enlisted man's daughter was going to be able to go to medical school. And I interpreted it that they didn't have confidence or faith in me or didn't think I was smart enough. So my dad got stationed from Ohio at the same year I was burned back to San Antonio, Texas to Lackland Air Force Base. And we lived in a very small town outside about 30 miles west of San Antonio called Lacoste, Texas. And it was a very small school. Everybody was the same last name. You had, you know, we were very much outsiders being a military family. And uh, so I just told my mom I wanted to I wanted to leave school and be a doctor, and um, they weren't sure how I was going to navigate that. So despite not having any mentors or role models, um, I think on the basis of great Western characters, I fashioned a pathway for myself, and that was to leave home, get a job, start at um, San Antonio uh, Community or Junior College, as it was then. Now it's called San Antonio College, um, and I just kept working and then enlisted when I was 18, and that helped. So I did clerical work and I said, well, if I, if I go into nursing, I can work at night and still take the courses I need to get into medical school. And I had programmed out all the courses I need, what I needed to do. Uh, and I just kept working and going to school until I got a degree in nursing, a master's in education, and then went to medical school. And, um, and I still remember starting at medical school. Um, I remember both my parents being there for orientation and it's one of the proudest days of my life. I just, you know, they didn't think that one of their children could could do that. So first in the family to go to college, first to graduate college, only one uh, 
at that time to have gone to medical school. And I really think that all of those things in your life build up and that experience helps you to navigate the circumstances that, that face you. And I really think people in the military really understand that. They understand how to improvise, how to adapt, how to be resilient. Um, and there's a lot of talk about that in public health. And I was a director of public health, uh, resiliency. And you know, resiliency isn't trying to prevent people from avoiding the circumstances they come from. We can't all come from a wonderful family life where both parents are there helping us to fulfill our potential. But resiliency, how we can help people is to help them navigate and adapt and live through the circumstances as horrific as they can be uh, that may face them when they're younger. So you mentioned the military and resilience. Why did you choose to join the army? Why didn't you follow a civilian route? Um, you know, I thought that uh, I was very comfortable with the military. So my dad was in the Air Force. My two older brothers were in the military. So I was comfortable in the military um, and it was a lifestyle to me that wasn't foreign. Um, and I knew that they would help me get my education. So I knew that in enlisting that I could have the GI Bill and the GI Bill could help me go through college. Um, and I had a lot of um, experience in the military through my father. It seemed like every Armed Forces Day and Memorial Day and July 4th, almost every one of them, we were at a military base doing various activities. Uh, so the only real decision was, did I go into the Army or I went into the Navy? And I think back on it, and the Navy had a much better uniforms. Um, but uh, I figured there was more military bases and medical facilities in the, in the Army as compared to the Navy. And so I went the route of the Army and uh, O.D. Green. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm proud to have served my country. I think it's a wonderful thing for young people to do. And uh, it's a wonderful route for people to take. Um, and sometimes it uh, exposes you to things that you never would have thought would be beneficial to you uh, at the same time as you're helping to serve your country. So uh, very, very honored that that was a decision I made at a very young age. Uh, and it certainly has been beneficial for me and hopefully beneficial for our nation as well. Certainly has. What did other nurses and the doctors you worked with think of your desire to become a doctor? Did they give you a lot of encouragement? Was there any resentment or jealousy or even discouragement? Oh, that's a great question. And I'm rarely asked that question, but you're very perceptive. Um, and there was all of the above. Um, so I had, uh, I had gone, you know, when you're in the military, you get assigned various places. And so it wasn't always in keeping with the plan that I wanted. So I had, um, I'd gone in uh, doing clerical work. And then when I got my degree in nursing, I was promoted to lieutenant. And so um, my first assignment was at Walter Reed as a, as a nurse. And uh, I met my husband there. He was an E6 licensed practical nurse. You can imagine this story is at the tail end of the Vietnam War. He got an article 15 for dating me. Um, which we have framed and used to be on the wall of every property or place we rented or owned. And uh, we still have it somewhere, but uh, now he probably wishes he would have paid that fine because he's got a life sentence. So we've been married 38 years. And so I thank the army for my wonderful husband. Um, but, um, you know, when I was, then I was assigned uh, to the operating nurses course at uh, William Beaumont in Fort Bliss. And then I went to Korea uh, which is uh, what got me on the track to get my master's degree. And I came back stateside to Fort Hood, and I was finally at a place where I could, again, resume uh, the educational courses I needed to go to medical school. And I had a phenomenal, phenomenal um, uh, charge nurse. Uh, our department head, um, Colonel Phillips, uh, who is from Puerto Rico, she was an amazing woman. And so despite some of the other nurses you know, initially being okay with me taking courses and going to school and altering the schedule, they rapidly became uh, jealous. And Colonel Phillips just stayed the course and said, you know, uh, you know, Captain Miller makes is, you know, taking all the call doing every weekend. And so this is our arrangement. Uh, but she was very supportive of me. Um, and it was probably one of the first time in my life I felt someone was truly supportive and thought that I could do what I was doing. I, I was the trauma nurse. The physicians loved working with me. I was very fast. I was a very quick thinker. I could take calls from the floor and, uh, you know, handle what the emergencies or problems were without interrupting the doctors and really thought about doing thoracic or neurosurgery or trauma. But it's definitely why I wanted to do some surgical 
subspecialty when I went into medicine. And uh, so you get the right amount of courage, encouragement at the right time to, to help you instill confidence. And for me, it was a life lesson that I've taught my children, which is, you know, mistakes that you make or failures that happen, um, they're what show you character, or you get your self-esteem from things that you do right. But don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid of taking a risk. And, uh, you know, and if things go wrong, how you respond to that is really what shows the character of what you are. So I think I got the right mix of encouragement, support, as well as, uh, you know, detractors, all of which, you know, helped me along the pathway that I was going. And how long did it take you to earn your medical degree? And what was the most challenging part? Um, so it took, uh, so I had four years of undergraduate and then I did courses, uh, you know, for six years. So I graduated from college when I was 20 because I started when I was 16. Um, and my father loved the fact that I had never graduated high school, even though I graduated college and then medical school. So, um, and then four years of medical school, one, two, one year of internship, three and a half years of residency. The hardest part, um, I would say the hardest part was getting into medical school. Um, you know, once I got into medical school, and, you know, had been promoted in the army and had made it into the officer ranks. And I was, uh, you know, major in the reserves. By that point in time, I think I had the confidence to be able to, you know, to go the distance. So I would say getting into medical school, having worked and going to school, worried about school loans, worried about how to pay for things. Um, you know, that time period with without having any mentorship or background or people around you that had gone to college. I think those things were the most challenging. Um, but, you know, I, I never lost faith. I never lost hope. I always thought I could do it. And I just had to stay the course and work hard. Um, and I would uh, finally get, you know, to be a physician. And then, as you know, uh, you have you have a plan. But then once you go to that place, then you see there's some place else you want to go. So now here I am in Congress, which I never started out wanting to be a politician or in Congress. This show, Next Steps Forward, is about leadership through adversity. How did you lead yourself forward? How did you keep yourself motivated throughout a long professional journey when many people have given up? That's a great question. I think one is that um, setting goals, I think, is very important. And I think that's one of the things that the military helps people to do, whether it's through short courses, whether it's through long training. Um, I think the military is very good at helping people to set goals. Maybe it's a, just a goal for discipline. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a good habit to have to set a goal. It can be big. It can be little. Uh, but it, achieving a goal helps to helps you to gain self-confidence and self-esteem. And you can also, you know, park for a while and come back, come back. Uh, and that's OK. Uh, and being able to forgive yourself. So I'm, I'm raised Catholic and I always hated confession. You know, I hated doing it. But as I got older, I realized how very important confession and forgiveness was and forgiveness for other people. Uh, because it helps you to forgive yourself and it helps you to, um, you know, to get past where we fail uh, because all of us are going to fail. All of us are going to make mistakes, but you have to be able to forgive yourself the mistakes that you make so that you can go forward and go on. Um, and so I think setting goals, very important. Um, uh, and then uh, realizing that, uh, you know, all of these little platitudes you grow up with uh, in every cloud, there's a silver lining. Um, you know, you can, uh, make lemonade out of lemons, or you can have lemons. So I, I just think I had, uh, you know, I had a, the right kind of attitude uh, that was reinforced by the way that I grew up. I saw parents who worked very hard, and um, they had setbacks, but nonetheless, they were able to to achieve certain things and and create a better life for themselves and their children. Um, and then again, I think the things that I read growing up, the types of books that I read, you know, all of that, I think led to um, to service me and to help me through the circumstances of what I was trying to get through. Um, and then I remember saying to one of my patients um, who was uh, going through an incredibly difficult time, and I said, you're always so happy. You're always so pleasant. You always smile. I bet people think that you never had a care in your life. And she admitted that that was true. So I think I've learned such such valuable life lessons from my patients as well when I was a nurse and also when I was a doctor. A few moments ago, you said you wanted to become a surgeon. 
you're an ophthalmologist, which involves performing eye surgery. What is it about that particular field of medicine that attracted you to it? Well, um, when I was applying for residency programs, so you think that the hard part's getting into medical school. Then you get into medical school and you realize you're not done with all the tests, that it continues. And what kind of residency program you get into really is determinate upon how well you do in medical school. So your grades within medical school, uh, the tests that you take. And so when I was applying for residency, the two hardest specialties to get into were ophthalmology and orthopedics. And my colleagues all thought I should go into ophthalmology. And so I know that I wanted to do something that was surgical and ophthalmology had surgery. And the things that I was thinking of doing uh, thoracic surgery, because I'd done a lot of that as a nurse, um, neurosurgery. I had tutored neuroscience as a second year med student, loved the brain, loved the spinal cord. I did, the whole interconnection I thought was fascinating. Um, it, but, uh, you know, I also wanted to be married and I was engaged to the person I'd met uh, five years earlier at Walter Reed. And he was also going to school and had gotten his degree in nursing. And so um, I knew that I wanted to have a lifestyle where I could have children as well and, and, and have a marriage um, and support, you know, a spouse uh, that was also working. So as I looked at all of that, ophthalmology had uh, surgery. It also had patients of all ages. So I wasn't restricted to one age group. Uh, it also had, you know, uh, office or clinic as well as surgery. So as I looked at all of the specialties and the fact that I was Alpha Omega Alpha, which is the National uh, Medical Honor Society, I was also National Nursing Honor Society uh, when I got my degree in nursing. So I looked at all of that and I said, well, you know, I'll try ophthalmology and if I end up not liking it, I'll finish my residency and then I'll do another residency in, in one of the other uh, surgical specialties. Uh, and so I didn't even do a rotation in ophthalmology by the time I had applied for my residency. Um, I did that in my fourth year, uh, but loved what I did in my, um, my uh, rotation in, as a fourth year medical student and have loved ophthalmology ever since. So it's a phenomenal specialty. I hope to do missionary work now that I'm in Congress and not working. Um, and I miss my patients. I miss my patients. I miss the practice of medicine. I miss taking care of uh, patients. And I must have a receptive face because people would tell me very intimate things in their life even though they didn't need to for our practice. So I'm grateful for the times when I was able there to be there to listen to patients who wanted to talk about something other than their eye condition and share something with me. And I hope that that helped ease some of the burden and discomfort in their life. So as if that medical career wasn't enough of a success story, you didn't stop there. The governor of Iowa at the time was Terry Branstad, who was later named the ambassador to China. And he appointed you in 2011 to serve as the director of the Iowa Department of Public Health. What does the state director of public health do? And what did you learn from your time in that position? Well, with several things. So when I uh, became the director of public health, I had actually campaigned. So I campaigned for Congress. Not only did I win by only six votes, but uh, I had campaigned for Congress uh, um, by this time twice. Um, and, uh, you know, when you fail, I, again, maybe I'm just um, overly optimistic, but I think that, you know, God puts you in a place and a time where you need to be. And so because I didn't make it into Congress in 2010, I became the director of public health. And so I got to run a very large uh, state government agency. And so public health is what you hear right now going on, which is COVID-19. So uh, that's the organization that helps us with vaccinations with immunizations, which tracks uh, pandemics or foodborne um, uh, outbreaks. And so um, the director of public health uh, does all of those infectious diseases and contagious diseases. In addition to which um, they determine outbreaks, vaccination rates for childhood immunizations. But then the CDC is called you know, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So we also do a lot of other preventative work our Department of Public Health had uh, SNAP or food stamps. It had, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, childhood uh, uh, diseases. It had uh, working with children and uh, and adults to have preventative health care. Uh, so, um, and then we also had behavioral health, which was addiction within the Department of Public Health. So all of that was encompassed within the Department of Public Health here in the state of Iowa. Mental health was not part of the Department of Public Health, but that's something that in some, in some states uh, it is. 
We also had tobacco, tobacco control and prevention, gambling addiction. So, uh, and then environmental health was also within the Department of Public Health. So, you know, lead abatement, lead treatment, lead prevention, uh, those types of things with it were within the Department of Public Health. And um, I had a wonderful staff uh, and I was very grateful to have been in that position because it also helped me learn about state government and it helped me learn the role that uh, government agencies have in making law, which are called rules, but those rules are law. So um, I am just very grateful that I was put in that position uh, because it really helps me in the position I am now in Congress. So that was just a small job, not too much to do or worry about. No. You mentioned the pandemic. We'll talk about it after the break. We've been talking to Congresswoman Marinette Miller-Meeks. We'll be right back after a short break. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we're back with Marionette Miller-Meeks, ophthalmologist, former public health director, and first-term congresswoman from the great state of Iowa. Congresswoman, you told the media back in 2013 or 2014 that the thing that kept you awake at night was a pandemic. And that's exactly what we got in late 2019 and early 2020 with COVID. What did we get wrong? What did we get right with the, with the pandemic? Where do we go from here? Well, it's interesting. The interview was about a cryptococcal infection that we had had in the state of Iowa. Actually, uh, there were numerous states that ended up being involved. It came from lettuce, uh, was where, uh, where the organism was ultimately found. And so I was been, being interviewed about this and then was just asked what kept me up at night. And I said, a virus or bacteria that comes from another nation, from a foreign country uh, that, um, you know, we don't know much about. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to respond quickly. I had become director of public health about a year and a half after the H1N1 uh, pandemic. And so um, it is not a surprise, uh, you know, had uh, also been concerned about anthrax and keep ciprofloxacin in my, my medicine cabinet at home. Uh, but we knew that this, you know, H1N1 was not going to be the next pandemic. And I wasn't necessarily thinking about a pandemic from the standpoint of bioterrorism, uh, but certainly that is something that we have to consider. Um, what, what did we get right and what did we get wrong? I think what we got wrong, and it was something that I was concerned about at the time, uh, and I wrote an article about this at the end of April, and then it, I think it got published in the Washington Examiner uh, as an op-ed in May of last year, and that is that in shutting down an economy and in shutting down hospitals and, and clinics, that we would have more deaths because of how we responded to the pandemic than from whatever, um, you know, was the organism. Uh, and we have an organism in SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2 that primarily affects people that are medically vulnerable or elderly. And we're now, um, I remember asking Dr. Walensky of the CDC in April, how many excess deaths at that time did we have from how we responded to the pandemic? And the answer was 500,000. And at that time, we had 560,000 deaths from COVID-19. And that is if every one of those deaths are from only COVID-19 and not other, other medical problems along with COVID-19 or coexisting together. And so I was concerned about deaths from cardiovascular disease like myocardial infarctions or strokes, deaths from people not getting screened for cancer and or not being treated for cancer, diabetes, um, 
And then I was very concerned about mental health and what would happen with depression, anxiety, uh, that there would be increased suicide and that there would be increased drug use, uh, drug addiction and drug overdoses. And that has come true in uh, January of this year in San Francisco, the San Francisco Chronicle published that there were that over half, uh, twice as many deaths in the 18 to 45 age group. And remember, these are not the people that are susceptible to die or get seriously ill from COVID-19. Uh, but in that age group, there were over twice as many deaths from uh, from drug overdose than there were from COVID-19. Um, and the numbers are staggering. The numbers of youth, youth suicide, um, you know, the Las Vegas school system opened up uh, to in-person learning in January because in 2020, between March and June, when they were closed, there were six uh, deaths among young students. And between uh, July 1st and December 31st, there were 12 additional, the youngest of which was age nine. So given that uh, human beings are social animals and that we connect socially, I felt our response to the pandemic um, was incorrect. And we should learn from that because this will become the pres precedent for other pandemics. Uh, the other thing was that we um, we had too much uh, focus uh, and um, confidence in the CDC and the FDA that they would get the testing right. So the University of Washington had already developed a test for COVID-19. And instead of utilizing that testing mechanism, we were waiting for the CDC and FDA to develop their, their own tests. So we lost time in testing that would have been very beneficial uh, that we could have had. Uh, what did we do right? I think having people to uh, not be in large groups, to isolate themselves, uh, or to be in smaller groups, I think was appropriate. Masks are, you know, they're semi-effective. And I think early on, we should have just been transparent with people. We don't want people buying N95 masks, but other masks, they're not 100% effective. They're maybe 30% effective, but they will capture the large uh, you know, liquid droplets where the virus is inhabited and they will help to prevent some, uh, you know, some spread, but I'm not for a mask mandate. Careful hand washing, temperature checking, avoiding going out or around people when you're sick. Those messages probably have done more to help to prevent um, illness uh, and infection. The other thing I think we've done, uh, we've done wrong because I think the pandemic was politicized was we haven't talked about those things that can prevent illness and death. And so you hear a lot about them. There's a lot of censorship uh, when you talk about it or you post things on social media. And, you know, science is about experimentation. It is about, um, you know, having a debate, having a discourse. And when scientists and doctors and healthcare professionals cannot talk amongst each other and around each other because they're afraid of being censored or they're afraid that they won't be accepted by their peers or they won't be able to uh, be invited for a talk or publish in a journal, that is extremely detrimental uh, to how we can advance medicine and advance discourse. So those are things that I think, um, you know, have been wrong. The other thing is we continue to focus on cases. And I've said for months to stop focusing on the numbers of positive cases and focus on hospitalizations, especially ICU hospitalizations and death. That's the real metric, because in my mind, we probably reached immunity in the April or May time uh, period, uh, given the numbers of vaccinated individuals and the numbers of people who had immunity from having infection. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing with Omicron. The reason why it's not as serious, the data from South Africa was that um, it was, uh, you would be symptomatic, you would have mild, uh, mild symptoms like a cold, but there was very little hospitalization and death. And they're seeing that now in the UK. I think there's been one reported death from the Omicron. But the reason it may be so mild, even though it's highly infectious, meaning contagious, uh, may be because we already have immunity. So I think we need to focus. I've said this um, throughout the you know, late summer and uh, fall and now winter. We need to focus on hospitalization and death rather than uh, the number of cases, the number of positive cases as being the metric for which we measure how we do. Um, and so I think things that we did right as well, vaccine development. Tremendous success story. And I think a lot of people don't look at it, but for us to develop a vaccine within nine months is a huge success story. And we can thank President Trump, Vice President Mike Pence and, uh, you know, Warp Speed, and then all of the researchers, doctors and, uh, uh, you know, pharmaceutical 
companies that got us to the development of the vaccine, but we do need to focus on treatment options and people should have the right to try. We even have a law, the right to try. They have, should have the right to try various things that may be repurposed generic drugs. Uh, they may be alternate treatments. They may seem like they're strange and odd, uh, but we ought to be able to try those to see if, if individually or in combination with other generics or other medications, even if they're um, repurposed or off-label FDA um, use, be able to try those to prevent hospitalization and death. A few the other thing we need to work on is supply chain. So I didn't get to that, uh, but supply chain is an issue. Our strategic national stockpile, that needs to be rethought. Um, rather than, you know, you're in the military, so rather than having stuff in a warehouse for, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years, when I was in charge of our MASH unit, um, you know, we would... Every, you know, we would have our training exercises and we would bring all of our equipment out. And if it was single use disposable, we would take it out. If it was near expiration, we would re-sterilize all of our equipment. So we would be reintroducing things into our supply chain. We can take that lesson and utilize that in the civilian world for pandemics. We can also pre-position supplies. Um, and we need to resource things back to the United States from China, especially when it comes to PPE and when it comes to pharmaceuticals. That needs to be onshored back to the United States and diversify our supply chain. So those are things we can learn from this pandemic. A few moments ago, you touched on mental health, anxiety, depression, suicide. Over the course of the last year, year and a half, this show has had a big focus on that and mental health and how we better ourselves. You know, and I've said that I think the one positive spotlight, one positive thing that COVID has given us is to put a spotlight on mental health, but really in the positive way of reducing or eliminating the stigma. You know, so I think the next global pandemic is in the mental health space, but put that aside, what do we do to prepare for the next pandemic? You talk about things in terms of the supply chain, bringing things back on shore. What else can we do? So the supply chain is a huge issue and problem, and we need to address that. So as we know, when we took things out of the strategic national stockpile, there were masks that were moldy. There was, um, you know, equipment that was ineffective. So, um, you know, equipment needs to be brought out. It needs to be tested. That includes ventilators, um, you know, gloves, masks, gowns, you know, and there's ways that we can work within the supply chain to have companies store things for short periods of time and then reintroduce them so that we have the allocation of what we think we need. Um, and then um, we can reintroduce that. So you don't have to store it in a warehouse untouched for years on end. There's ways that you can have a continually rotating supply chain of equipment. We talked about China and the Chinese Communist Party and what they did uh, with, uh, you know, holding up uh, uh, PPE or uh, personal protective equipment. And so we know we need to reshore that. And many companies in the United States voluntarily or through contracts with FEMA um, repurposed uh, what they did uh, within their production facilities in order to produce masks, shields, gowns, um, uh, or other types of uh, personal protective equipment. And that's certainly learning from that and having that ability, knowing what those companies do, being able to have them alter production uh, sanitizer, that's you know another one of those things uh, that can be very helpful. And then we forget about testing reagents, but uh, because the, uh, it was a global pandemic and testing was going on in the United States and all over the world, uh, we ended up uh, lacking testing re reagents uh, in order to do tests. And some of this also came from, uh, from uh, China. So uh, having that ability and that needs to be within our strategic national stockpile, I think is very important. And then pharmaceuticals. Um, so we need to learn from, uh, you know, those uh, protocols and policies that got us to develop a, a vaccine. We need to rely upon our research facilities, our hospitals that may have a testing mechanism rather than we saw the, uh, the failure with the CDC in developing uh, testing for COVID-19. Those are things that can be done and needs to be rethought in how we respond to the next pandemic. How do we do contact tracing better? Um, one of the things that I had mentioned to um, our state legislature and governor when we went into our pause last March is to um, that we needed to address immediately rather than waiting until we had a surge and overwhelmed our hospitals. We needed to have a medical reserve task force. Just like we have um, in the military, we have the reserves and we have National Guard. We needed to have a public health reserve. So uh, be that retired physicians, nurses, nurses or doctors that may be in a pause or they may be child rearing. 
uh, or people that had, you know, had medical background, they had been licensed, but they were in another part of their career, that these individuals, we needed to address licensure right away so that we could count upon them and bring them back in if we needed them as a medical reserve task force. And again, that's com combining what I learned in the military with what um, I learned in public health, um, it, because people can be retrained. It doesn't take a whole lot of training to help them to do contact tracing. Um, we also, um, we had talked about myself and some of the other senators about uh, telehealth, telemedicine, and that we needed to broaden telehealth and telemedicine. All insurance companies in Iowa needed to accept it, and then we needed to increase reimbursement. So that's another thing that we learned through the pandemic. And really, technology was up to the place where telemedicine and telehealth became um, you know, became viable, whereas before the image uh, transmission was not good enough uh, to really allow uh, telemedicine to take off. So things happened uh, at around the same point in time when the pandemic came about. Um, I know I'm forgetting some things and uh, probably your listeners will be able to fill some things in, but I think all of those are valuable things that we learned. And, and we should never forget that as bad as the pandemic has been, there are things we can learn. And just like we do in the military, when you do after action reports, we need to go through this one to further determine what we did well, what we did right, and what we can do better the next time. And a failure to do that will, will create um, delays in care, delays in treatment, delays in testing and response in the next pandemic. So it's very important that we go back through this pandemic with a critical eye to what we can do better the next time. Let's shift gears for a moment and go back to your historic election. What was your reaction when the dust settled after election night and you found out the margin was only six votes? You know, I know there are a lot of twists and turns between election night and when your opponent finally dropped her challenge, but give us a bit of an idea of what happened and what got you through that difficult time. Well, election night, we were ahead by uh, several hundred uh, votes. We had us up ahead by over 400. The, you know, we're following the Secretary of State's website, and they had us up by about 300. So even on election night, we knew that there were going to be challenges. We knew that the election was not over. Even though I had won, we knew that uh, you would have this time period up until about a week, till the Monday after the election for any mail-in ballots that had gotten to the uh, to the county courthouse, those ballots would be counted. There are also what are called provisional ballots. So those are ballots that are set aside because perhaps somebody didn't have their photo ID when they voted or their address had changed. So um, we actually, even that day, had a plan and a strategy. So, um, and you know, you're in the military, I'm in the military. What's one of the things you learn in the military? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. So immediately right away after the election, even though we were ahead and even though we won, we had to plan out a strategy for, uh, for the provisional ballots, uh, which would be finally determined at the official county canvas, which is one week after the election. We then had to plan for the recount. Uh, and then we had to plan for certification. And then we had to plan for it to go to the Iowa courts. And it wasn't until I went to orientation in November that I realized I also had to plan in case it went to Congress. So we brought together a legal team. We kept our campaign team. We continued to employ all of our campaign staff and team. So we had a three-pronged approach, communications. We kept all of our communications team. And we also had uh, communications with the House Committee on Administration. Uh, which is part of the congressional staff, and then also with the National uh, Republican Congressional uh, Committee, the NRCC. So we had a communications PR strategy, we had a legal strategy, and then we had, uh, you know, what we had to do on the campaign end. So all of those had to meld together and work together, because if you were trying to do something communication and PR, but it put you in a bad position when you brought things to court, or it was it would gonna make it difficult for the legal team to be able to argue it in court, whether we won the recount or didn't. All of those things had to work together. So we had numerous conference calls with, uh, with a, you know, 20 to 30 people on a conference call to be able to get through that. So what got me through one is that uh, having faith in God. Uh, two, I have a phenomenal husband and family who supported me every single step of the way. We would have very high highs and we have very low lows. Uh, and throughout that, you just know that you have to focus on the mission, focus on the task at hand and continue to work through that process. It's interesting that I always thought that we would win through Congress. 
Um, I don't know why I felt that. It wasn't until uh, after the contest was over uh, that uh, I realized that not everybody felt as uh, as positive as I did. Um, and but I had a I had a job, so my job was to be the congresswoman within my district. And since we we're in the pandemic, I decided instead of doing town halls that I would do vaccine clinics in all 24 counties, which is what I did. So trying to use my uh, medical expertise, um, the fact that I was a doctor as well as a congresswoman in order to encourage people to get vaccinated to get us through the pandemic. Um, and then being a veteran and I'm on veterans committee, I was able to work with other military veterans on both sides of the aisle and uh, to pass legislation. So that developed helped me develop relationships with some of my Democrat colleagues which I knew that in order for this to prevail, I would have to have at least five Democrats be willing not to overturn a state certified election. Uh, I needed to get local media attention as well as national media attention. And throughout the process, I was, as we are in Iowa, we're considered Iowa nice. So I was Iowa nice. So I told, I told the rest of the team, they could be the mean person. I was gonna be matter of fact, I was gonna be, uh, you know, the process by which we were going through and the fact that no, this wasn't something that was singular to Iowa, that if Congress could overthrow a state certified election uh, with you know, election provisions put in place, everybody knowing the rules before the campaign or before the election even happened, that they could overthrow an election in anybody's uh, congressional district. So it was something that should be important to everyone. And ultimately we were able to get uh, nine Democrats to come out and say they would not overturn a state certified election. And at that point in time, I think that, you know, Nancy Pelosi had to ask herself how much she wanted to push her members for one more seat when she was going to need them all together for some very difficult votes. And so um, I'm sure that there was a communication between the speaker of the House Committee on Administration uh, and my opponent's campaign uh, team that said, we're going to stop this now. And uh, so it actually stopped on March 31st, which was the day before April Fool's Day. And I thought I was going to wake up on April Fool and found out it all been a joke. <laughs> so, so now you're finishing your first year in Congress. What issues are important to you? What are you working on and why? So I'm on um, Homeland Security, uh, Education and Labor, uh, Veterans Committee, and then the Select Subcommittee Task Force on the Coronavirus. Um, veterans issues are very important to me. Um, I think I've passed uh, 11 bills, if you consider the ones that are rolled into the NDAA or the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, most of those are veterans bills. So whether they're veteran suicide, PTSD, um, educational benefits for veterans. Remember, veterans that are on the GI Bill, if they were in college uh, during the pandemic and there was a pause in uh, in their education and their GI Bill benefits would run out during the pause before they could finish their degree. Um, so Mickey Sherrill and I, she's a, a Democrat, worked on extending GI Bill benefits if they're paused, um, if you know their education is paused through no fault of their own, uh, both and that on the disability um, front as well. Uh, educational benefits uh, and workforce. We have a vet tech bill, which we got it's a very popular six months training in, you know, technology, whether it's uh, computer science, whether it's repair, whether it's coding, it's a very popular program. Uh, it's six months in length, and um, we have well over 2,000 veterans who are now employed at uh, average salaries above 57,000 a year. So, and we know that for a veteran uh, for PTSD, that if you're employed and you have support, you're less likely uh, to have mental health problems and less likely to commit suicide. So, you know, working on those issues, suicide prevention within the military, one of the bills I'm very proud of that passed the House unanimously and then got put into the NDAA was Veterans in Parks. So it's lifetime passes for veterans, Gold Star uh, family members and, um, and active duty military, which then uh, goes into their veteran status. Uh, and we know that uh, that being a, out in nature, whether it's hunting, walking, uh, you know, on a river, that that helps us with our, you know, our physical health, our mental health, and our spiritual health, and hopefully is an avenue through which, um, you know, our veterans will uh, will not commit suicide. So it's a bill that I'm very proud of as well. We have just a few minutes left. How do we convince young women that they can run for Congress or be Lieutenant Colonel in the Army or become an ophthalmologist? As a father of two daughters, what can we do to inspire young women and girls to reach the professional heights that you have? 
Well, first and foremost, I'm going to say that you already have provided that roadmap and that role model for your daughters. Uh, so you're providing that as we speak by what you've done in the military and then what you have with your with the next steps forward program. So um, so I think you're well on the way to doing that. And just as much as we want to inspire young women, we also want to inspire young men. Uh, so on both fronts, I think uh, knowing the, the support uh, and the, the importance of family, the importance of fathers in the lives of their daughters, the importance of mothers in the lives of their son and to both children, uh, to not be afraid to admit our mistakes uh, to our children and to let them know that the mistake is not what defines you. It's how you respond to that that defines who you are and the character that you have. And there are much smarter people and, and uh, more noteworthy people than me saying that. Uh, so I think those are things that we can do. Let them know that the path is not always even, uh, but it's not the cards that you're dealt uh, with in life that uh, determine who you are and what a success you are. It's how you play the cards you're dealt. Uh, and I think um, all of those things lead us uh, to a pathway in successes and how much money you make. It's the journey and the adventure that we go on. Um, having a good attitude, smiling a lot. Um, I think always remember that somebody else may have um, a worse circumstance than you have. Uh, and if you could help lighten their load, that you may be doing something that you had no idea would impact somebody in the way that impacts somebody. Uh, so I think all of us have a role in trying to help people be encouraging be supportive and allow letting people know that, um, uh, you know, success is just around the corner for them. You just have to have the tenacity, the perseverance, the wherewithal, and the right attitude to grab at the brass ring. Congresswoman Miller-Meeks, thank you for taking time from your very busy schedule and sharing your inspiring life story today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's been wonderful to be on you. I hope that we can continue this uh, conversation and relationship and relationship with your listeners. Uh, you know, you're an inspiration to so many people. And I hope that in sharing my story, there are some people that are inspired uh, by it and uh, they can feel free to contact me uh, through, through you or through our office in Washington, D.C. I look forward to that. Thank you. And as always, thank you to our wonderful audience for tuning the next steps forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place. Another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.